14 minutes it is uh, before 9 p.m. We're under the microscope this evening and uh, we focus in on uh, social welfare payments and, uh, of course, uh, the implications these have on poverty reduction, aggregate demand. And uh, this on the back of a lot of work that has happened, um, even before, I guess, predating the introduction of the Social Relief of Distress Grant um, and uh, also uh, many of the other measures that have come through during this moment. Uh, but uh, also a comparison or comparative study coming out of the University of Johannesburg comparing South Africa and Brazil, uh, seeing that uh, the child support grant had been very instrumental in not only poverty reduction, but in empowering women. And uh, to tell us a bit more about this, I'm joined by the co-director at the Institute for Economic Justice, and that is Neil Coleman, to talk about this particular matter, but also, I guess, uh, the path to a universal basic income. Neil, good evening to you and welcome. Thank you very much for joining us, Neil. Let's maybe, I guess, you know, you, you, you've been around for a while and uh, you certainly would have been uh, within, <laughs> within the trade union <laughs> movement at the time of the Taylor Report in the early 2000s. Let's yeah. maybe start off there because I think many would say that that was probably a very important milestone in this particular debate, which no doubt continues. Sure, sure. Yeah, I wonder, it actually goes back to 1998. Uh, at the presidential job summit, where mm. Labour, for the first time, tabled a proposal for a basic income grant, uh, I was one of the authors of that of that proposal. And at that time, it was a completely new idea, and mm. government was a bit taken aback and said, "Let's investigate this." And in the end, it 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 it, it culminated in the setting up of this uh, Taylor Committee of Inquiry, which recommended the introduction of the basic income grant, and of course. There was quite a lot of mobilization at that point by civil mm. society, by the churches, the labor movement, uh, etc., uh, which led to uh, the, the, the governing party uh, saying that it would investigate this further. But, of course, uh, not much progress had been made on that mm. until last year when this crisis hit. There was a realization that, look, the situation that... Um, you know, over 10 million people between 18 and 59 uh, who are unemployed, but also others who are living in extreme poverty, uh, had no access to any form of income security. Uh, and therefore, uh, something has to be done um, to, to look at some form of income transfer. And that's when the COVID grant, the 350 mm. Rand grant and the caregivers grant were introduced. Uh, the caregivers grant, of course, was ended in October last year. And the COVID grant has been extended twice, but is due to expire at the end of this month. Um, just just so, as an organization, so, Neil. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, so this has squarely put the question of the importance of, of, of grants in, 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 in dealing with poverty and development uh, alongside other measures and the road to the introduction of the basic income grant. So the range mm. of civil society organizations, uh, including ourselves, IEJ, you know, uh, the, the C19 uh, uh, group, the uh, Black Sash, and many, many others, trade unions and, and others, who have been calling for both the extension of these grants as mm. well as, uh, you know, progressive uh, movement towards introduction of the universal basic income grant. Uh, or a universal basic income guarantee over the next year or so. And the reason that people call for a guarantee is to say that grants are things that you can give and take away, as we've seen with the COVID grant. But this is part of our constitutional mm. requirement that we progressively realize uh, so 
social security for everybody. And in this current crisis of COVID, of the, of the climate crisis, of the general international economic crisis, uh, the, this question of income security has been put very strongly uh, on the on the front burner. Yeah, yeah. Neil, I want us to take a brief break now. And uh, when we come back, I want us to unpack the experiences of that caregiver grant, the uh, Social Relief of Distress grant. Uh, but also, I guess, as this report coming out of uh, the University of Johannesburg and other uh, academic centers in the U.S. is suggesting that there's a need maybe to, to have some complementarity or co-articulation between uh, programs like the ones we've spoken about and uh, some form of active labor market interventions. And sure. uh, we'll come back to some of those discussions after this. Minutes it is uh, before 9 p.m. or eight minutes now. Uh, we're under the microscope this evening, and uh, I'm joined by the co-director at the Institute for Economic Justice, Neil Coleman, and uh, we're talking about, uh, I guess, the critical role that uh, social wage interventions, in particular social transfers, uh, play not only in poverty reduction and uh, the empowerment of women, but in development programs more broadly. And Neil, before we went to the break, thank you very much for. I guess uh, the context that you've shared with us, uh, which I guess makes us arrive with where we are. Um, sure. And this report that came through from Leila Patel and many of her colleagues suggesting that uh, what we need to do, if indeed we're going to talk about these programs and even phase into a universal basic income, is to see how we can co-articulate that with other active labor market interventions or other touch points within the state, as we've seen in the Bolsa Familia program in Brazil. What's the view of yourselves as the IEJ and also, I guess, um, uh, you know, as being part of the C19 coalition around sure. what that potentially might look like? Thanks, Ibonga. Just, just to mention that I'm uh, now the senior policy specialist at the Institute. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Sorry the, the, that. that's fine. The, the issue of uh, the overall developmental debate around grants, you know, there are many people, unfortunately, in South Africa still... Uh, feel that grants create dependency. And the the international experience, a whole range of studies, not just the study from the University of Johannesburg, but it was a, there was a macro sort of study of studies, if you like, by mm. Oxford University recently done for uh, the South African presidency, which also confirmed that uh, the international experience shows that the developmental impact of grants, not just in South Africa and Brazil, but in many, many other countries in Africa and other continents, goes beyond the question of reducing poverty. Uh, mm. It has, you know, many sort of uh, positive effects in terms of child nutrition and, and health. Uh, it, it increases school attendance. It facilitates job seeking. Um, it even, you know, uh, does uh, assist in investment in agriculture and informal businesses, um, you know, it avoids negative economic choices through getting into excessive debt, through mushroomises, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it has many, many benefits in, in, in that respect. And what, the, and, and what the UJ and other university studies shows is that in South Africa and Brazil, uh, that it had a particularly beneficial effect on women in, in helping them to, to meet basic needs, um, in, in assisting them in heightening financial independence and decision-making, and boosted their self-esteem and their ability to act uh, independently in, in, in society. So those are all very, very positive things. But as you say, they point out the fact that, you know, taken by themselves, grants can only do so much. They're not a silver bullet. They cannot do, 
everything that development needs to do in society because it's a particular um, uh, intervention which addresses poverty, but it doesn't address the productive side of the economy. It doesn't address the diversification of economic sectors. It doesn't address the, the question of, econo- of local economic development, although it assists the issue of local economic development because by raising demand, and I think you in an article in Business Day mentioned that with 20 billion rand every month pumped in to local economies, this is a major sort of uh, input. And you can imagine mm. that that was multiplied uh, many-fold through the introduction of the Universal Basic Income Grant. That would be even uh, more the case. So if you have complementary policies, you mentioned active labor market policies, and what mm. active labor market policies mean is really when there is a recessionary conditions when the economy contracts. You, um, you upskill people, you, you assist them in getting into the labor market, into finding jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the grant certainly acts as a bridge towards that. But in a society like ours, which is faced with very, very deep structural unemployment in which uh, you know, large uh, levels of unemployment continue regardless of the economic booms and slumps, there's a requirement for a much greater level of economic intervention. Mm. So that requires also large macroeconomic stimulus measures. It requires, you know, huge resources to be put into developing our labor-intensive sectors, manufacturing, downstream uh, sectors, small business, uh, at, at, at dealing with competition, excessive, um, excessive concentration of power and ownership in the economy. So all these issues have to be have to be taken together, but there's no doubt that um, a, um, a a comprehensive program of extending income to the poorest in society will definitely assist in in a number of those factors which we've outlined: economic stimulus, mm. helping sure. people to seek jobs, um, helping people to get training, um, you know, getting avoiding avoiding the sort of poverty trap and the deep depression which people face when they cannot find any economic alternatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil, maybe a last question on my end, and unfortunately we have run out of time. And I guess it's a question that says if the evidence, uh, or the evidence I should say, is is so clear on this particular matter, what about the political economy of the world of policy explains why it's taken nearly 20 years since the government, you know, got the Taylor report, for instance, to even start to build a regulatory framework around this? Yeah. You know, there's a very unfortunate reality in South Africa, which is that, you know, certain economic ideas, as you're very well aware and have often spoken about, dominate uh, in, in our society. And those, particularly of the financial sector and of our national treasury, who are very closely related, have tended to adopt ultra-conservative economic uh, policy stances and therefore have resisted the idea of what they call consumption spending, because they see the transfer of grants into people's hands as mm. just being wasteful expenditure to put it in a crude form. And they see, mm. you know, only investment in hard assets, infrastructure, etc., as being productive investment. And that's a very false polarity, which has been discredited. And problematic as well, yeah. Very problematic, because it, it regards people's uh, uh, livelihoods and communities, uh, you know, and levels of dignity and the ability for people to to basically reproduce themselves and their families as mm. as being unimportant. And I think the other point now is that with COVID, 
is a recognition that the, the idea of full employment becomes that much more difficult, but also that there's unrecognized, uh, uh, and a very important unrecognized role that women are playing in particular in their care mm. economy in terms of health, in terms of reproducing families, looking after children, etc., etc. And that uh, universal grant actually recognized that sort of unpaid work, um, but also uh, begins to take the pressure off the working poor, of, lo- of low-paid workers mm. who are having to act as social insurance to provide the, uh, the, the economic transfers, the income transfers to the unemployed mm. and the poorest mm. in society and that the state must play that role as the guarantor of last resort of, of a decent, decent, decent lifestyle. And that's what our constitution um, demands. And therefore, mm-hmm. the, the extension of these grants, which, which expire at the end of April, is absolutely critical, as well as the incorporation of caregivers, the 7 million caregivers who've now been excluded mm-hmm. from the COVID grant, um, because we believe that this is actually uh, in breach of the Constitution, but is also driving us into a downward spiral. The idea that we can have recovery without rescuing people who are in dire economic mm-hmm. straits is, is a non-starter in our view. Yeah, yeah. Neil, we'll have to leave it there, but as always, a pleasure catching up with you, and thank you very much for your insight this evening. Thanks very much, Ibrahim. That there was Neil Coleman. He's a senior policy advisor.